Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, on to the show. This week's show guest is Eric Townsend, a retired software entrepreneur turned hedge fund manager. Throughout his career, Eric has capitalized on his ability to understand complex systems and anticipate paradigm shifts far in advance of the mainstream. Eric is a fellow podcaster and is the host of Macro Voices, a weekly financial podcast which targets financial professionals, high net worth individuals, and other investors who desire financial content at a level of sophistication and complexity above what the retail investment-focused podcasts on the internet currently offer. Let's get on to the show. All right. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? Thank you so much for joining us. We're extremely grateful uh, for your time and excited to hear your thoughts uh, on sort of the world and investing. So thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, Absolutely. So um, for sort of the audience, we have a very global audience that's tuning in uh, from around the world. And uh, for probably the select few uh, that have not heard of you, because I think that you're you're pretty uh, prolific and you do a lot of uh, good work out there. So I think most people in investing have heard of you. Uh, But for those, the minority that hasn't, maybe you could give us a little bit of background, um, you know, how you got started off and, uh, you know, how you got sort of uh, how you became an investor, basically. Sure. Well, I'm not a Wall Street guy. uh, Originally, I was a software entrepreneur. I ran a software company in the 90s. And it was very clear to me by the late 90s that we were in a bubble in technology. So I sold my software company, not because I wanted to be retired at the age of 33, but because I could tell it was a good time to, uh, to liquidate my my assets there and uh, and to move on. So suddenly I found myself wondering at the age of 33, okay, what's next in life? And what I wanted to do, what my very strong inclination was, was to reinvent myself as a full-time private investor. I, I had always been fascinated by financial markets. I had been a retail investor previously. You know, I, I grew up watching Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser when I was in high school. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. And the single worst advice that I have ever received in my life was from a lawyer that was actually the lawyer, the M&A lawyer that handled my um, software company acquisition, just said, look, Eric, I've seen this so many times before. You get a smart guy like yourself, but you know, you're a software guy and you're feeling really confident because you've made millions of dollars selling your company and you know, that's great, but you're not a finance guy. You don't know all about finance and investing. You are not qualified to run the amount of money that you now have. You need the help of professionals. Right. Well, that was the worst advice that anybody's ever been given as far as I'm concerned. One thing he was right about is that I was not qualified to run my own money at that point. I didn't know enough about it. The correct solution to that problem should have been to learn all about it and not take any risks uh, of significance until I knew a lot more than I did. Instead, I trusted his advice, which was to allow the world's most prestigious investment bank (laughs) to run my money for me and to allow their private wealth management department (laughs) to to manage my money. It only took them about uh, six or seven years to lose half of my net worth. 
And so suddenly wow. uh, I wasn't quite as set for life as I thought I was when I uh, retired from the software business. And in part out of necessity, because I no longer had uh, the assets that I once did, and in part because it's what I'd always wanted to do, mm -hmm. I reinvented myself around the end of 2006, beginning of 2007, as a full-time private investor. And it's the best thing that I ever did. Retirement sucked. Uh, I Believe it or not, <laughs> uh, I lived on a mega yacht in the Caribbean, an 87 foot uh, motor yacht. Wow. Worst chapter of my life by far. <laughs> it looks amazing from a distance. It looks incredible. It's not. And as much as it probably sounds crazy to hear that, you know, I'm sure that being, living on a yacht in the Caribbean sounds amazing to you mm -hmm. too. Talk to somebody who's actually done it. Mm. And I'm not the only one who's had a very, very uh, disappointing experience with it. So anyway, I, uh, I started out uh, in really in 2006 or 2007 uh, to reinvent myself as a private investor. And I was amazed at how rewarding it was because I didn't know I had imagined, I knew like the Graham and Dodd style of mm -hmm. analyze a balance sheet and figure out what's a good company to buy stock in. And frankly, it sounded really boring to me. I didn't think I would like that. And I don't. I didn't know there's this whole world called macro investing, which has to do with learning about all of the things that are going on in the world and the actions of different nations and how those translate to currency exchange rates between countries and, uh, you know, interest rate differentials and so forth. Right. So when I learned that it's possible to discover all kinds of fascinating things about the world, like why is it that when there's an earthquake in Chile, that means the price of copper is probably about to go up. You can learn about all these fascinating things and make money from knowing these things. Wow, I, I didn't think that was possible. So it was really a discovery for me that this idea of global macro investing is a, a way to do this that really resonated with my personality. And that's, uh, that's how I got involved with it. And initially, I was living there in Hong Kong uh, full time and just uh, living in mid-levels, uh, being a private investor, just, you know, hanging out in my apartment with a beautiful view of Victoria Bay and, uh, and trading and learning more and more about it. And some friends of mine in Hong Kong uh, said, you know, you're doing all the work of running a hedge fund. Why don't you turn it into a hedge fund? And I thought, right. me? I'm, I'm, not, I'm a software guy. I, I'm not a <laughs> I, I can't do that. And they said, well, dude, you're, you're doing all of the work. You know, we, we've met private investors before right. the guy with the iPhone at the golf course, Eric, <laughs> you're sitting in front of nine computer monitors for 14 hours a day. That's not private investor. That's yeah. hedge fund manager not getting paid for it. Right. And I said, Oh, really? Okay. It took me a few years to really take that advice to heart. Cause frankly, I had not had a good experience mm -hmm. with the world's most prestigious investment bank. I didn't mm -hmm. think that this whole finance business is something that I frankly wanted to be involved with. And uh, eventually, I, I kind of warmed up to the idea and launched a fund in 2013 and have been having a blast ever since. That's awesome. That's a, that's a great intro that you gave, by the way. And uh, yeah, what a, what a fascinating story that you have personally. You know, I mean, I think that uh, it's, it's kind of rare to, to actually find people that are successful investors that kind of weren't doing it from, you know, day one. And it's kind of cool that you came from uh, being a very successful uh, software entrepreneur um, to retired to going back into uh, investing. So I find that fascinating. Now, uh, can we talk a little bit about, uh, so you launched a fund, what, what sort of strategy, um, you know, you talked about macro a bit, obviously uh, you're, you, you, you're a macro guy, but uh, how did you find that 
that path. There's many ways to make money in the market. And it seems like different people, you know, kind of go down different paths at some point in their lives. Um, and you know, it can range from value investing to momentum trading, uh, or macro. So how did you find yourself, uh, to become a macro guy? Well, the single most important rule that I know in the world of investing is what I call the Schwager Doctrine, and I name it after Jack Schwager, who you've also interviewed. Thank Jack you. has been the most outspoken in saying, look, there's no right or wrong way to trade. The right way is what resonates with your personality. And as I said, if you take something like balance sheet analysis and figuring out expense ratios and so forth, um, it's possible to make money that way. I could never do it because it would drive me crazy. You've got to figure out where your passion is. And I don't think anybody can be really, excess, really, really successful in investing unless you're doing it for the passion because you love doing it and you love waking up every day just excited to do some more of it. If you're doing it as a job that you have to do in order to make money to get by, I, I don't think you'll ever be successful with it. So, the Schrager Doctrine is figure out what resonates with your personality. And that really is, uh, is where I started. And I recommend reading Jack Schwager's books, uh, the Market Wizards books. Mm -hmm. uh, there are four of them, which are interviews with the most famous and successful investors and traders in the history of the world. And the reason to do that, if you're new at this, is not to learn how to invest from them, but to figure out which of those guys resonate with your personality, which is the one that you want as, as your role model. When I read the books, it was the macro guys. It was people like Jim Rogers uh, in particular. Um, Jim was a huge inspiration in my life. And, uh, you know, he was the guy when I read the Market Wizards books, I'm like, yeah, I want to be like this guy. <laughs> Think about what makes the world work. Think about what the interactions are between governments and trends in society and what it's going to mean. And one of the things that that led me to was reading, because I'm a very big picture thinker, it led me to thinking, about, uh, you know, okay, where do I start with really understanding the big picture of finance mm -hmm. and economics and so forth? A guy named Nikolai Kondratiev in Russia started writing about the long wave business cycle. Now, a lot of people, when they hear the phrase business cycle, they think about the boom bust cycle where each cycle is about five to seven yes. years. Think of those as the little waves on the ocean. Those little waves are on the surface of much larger swells. And those larger swells are the long wave business cycle, which runs about 80 years. So I first read about Kondratiev and I thought it was so fascinating that history comes in these rhythmic patterns that run about every 80 years or so. Mm. Kondratiev never really figured out why it was 80 years. It was Neil Howe who figured out, uh, who really modernized Kondratiev's work and wrote a book called The Fourth Turning, which was mm. a huge influence on me. And basically what Howe says is that although history doesn't repeat, it definitely rhymes and it mm -hmm. comes in these rhythmic seasons. And if you think about seasons of the year, there's four of them, they last for three months each. Well, the seasons in the long wave cycle are about 20 to 25 years in length. And they each have characteristics, just as you know what summer is like and what winter is like and what autumn is like and what spring is like. The, uh, a Kondratiev winter uh, or a fourth turning, as Hal calls it, has certain characteristics. And basically, each one of these, uh, Hal numbers them as first, second, third, and fourth turnings. The second turnings are the big periods of cultural and spiritual awakening where society tends to change. 
the last one that we had was the 1960s and 70s right. when we had, you know, free love and Woodstock and the women's movement right. and uh, radical changes in the the attitudes that people had socially, a, a liberalization uh, socially. The fourth turnings are the ones, the crisis periods, when things go very badly and major systems and institutions get replaced. If we go back to the Spanish and Indian Wars, uh, was a fourth turning. The next one after that was the American Revolution. The next one after that was the Civil War in the United States. The next one after that was the Great Depression and World War II. And the next one after that is the one that we're in right now, which began in 2008 with the Great Financial Crisis and which will continue until about 2030. So my biggest theme that I really follow is we're in a fourth turning. We're in Kondratiev winter, which means that major things, things that are thought to be just cast in concrete, never going to change. If you go back 100 years ago, the pound sterling is the world's reserve currency. Great Britain is the world's hegemonic military power. Nothing mm -hmm. will ever be bigger. Nothing will ever be stronger. That's just the way it is. Nobody questions it. Well, of course, you go through the last fourth turning with World War II. Now, all of a sudden, the U.S. dollar is the world's glo global reserve currency, and the United States is the world's great hegemonic military power that everybody assumes will never be challenged. And as we come into this second half of this fourth turning, that's the magnitude of things that tend to change. Now, I'm not necessarily predicting that those particular things change, but the point is something that is taken for granted, like the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency, or right. the center of everything is the United States, the military power, the, the financial center in New York, you know, the, the daddy of them all that's in mm -hmm. charge of the world is the United States. Things on that level uh, are the kinds of things that change in fourth turning. Where, where does Asia play into this? I think this is Asia's century. I, I think that uh, we're coming into a period in history where uh, it is very possible that the major powers in the world change, and I think that Asia's in a good place uh, to you know, kind of be the, the, where the power moves to. It moved from England to the United States, and I think that Asia may be next. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight, but over the next 100 years, uh, I think that you're going to see major shifts. So the, the concept of, of long-wave business cycles kind of informs everything that I do on a high level. Right. And from there, I break it down into you know, more specific uh, you know, themes and investment strategies. Got it. Um, that's a great uh, overview of, of, of your frame, investing framework. So uh, now from what, what you've just spoken about, it sounds like if uh, one were to be astute and, and, and more observant, one could, could tell that, um, like you said, we are coming up on the end of this long wave business cycle. Um, and essentially, it sounds like there could be some very dramatic shifts uh, that are just around the corner in the next, say, uh, 10 to 15 years time. Um, one of which, which you just mentioned is uh, sort of Asia's century and this sort of theme, this thematic that of course people are aware of. People know, hear about China all the time in the news, um, second largest economy, soon to be first at some point, the rising middle class and all the stuff that's happening over there. But I think that uh, the magnitude of this sort of, uh, you know, this huge shift that's happening uh, in the background, I think that a lot of people aren't sort of uh, aware of that as, as aware as, as, as clearly you are and maybe some of the more uh, educated investors are. So uh, what are some of the other, um, some of the other sort of uh, 
possible big changes that we might see, Eric, in the uh, next, say, 12 to 15 years? Well, one of them is definitely that our energy, uh, our attitudes about energy have to change. Mm. There's an idea that I call peak cheap oil. And sometimes people roll their eyes and say, what are you talking about peak oil? You know, oil's cheap right now. We've got too much of it. Well, it's absolutely true. We've got too much of it. But this is a short-term thing. As a result of the financial crisis in the United States, we had this easy money policy from the Federal Reserve that led to an overinvestment in the shale patch in the United States. So we do have too much oil. Oil is super cheap right now. And that's an opportunity because oil is not going to stay super cheap. The days of drill a hole in the ground and oil comes out are over. Doesn't All of the oil uh, resources where you can simply drill a shallow uh, oil well and oil comes gushing out have been used up. That doesn't exist anymore. Right now, the hot thing is shale oil where you drill mm -hmm. a hole in the ground and then you turn the drill bit and drill sideways horizontal uh, oil wells and then you uh, inject into it a very, very high pressure hydraulic fluid that's full of sand that cracks and breaks the rock and then the sand gets wedged in the cracks and holds them open and that allows the oil to flow. The point is, we're not ever going to run out of oil. That's nonsense. What we are going to do is have to rely on more and more human innovation and fancy technology in order to produce oil. And oil is absolutely the, uh, the backbone of the economy. Mm. People sometimes think, well, wait a minute, you know, electric vehicles are going to change all that. Uh, electricity is not a source of energy. Electricity is a transmission mechanism. You've got to get the energy from someplace. So either we're going to continue to burn fossil fuels in order to generate electricity, or we're going to have a very, very different attitude about nuclear energy, which would be a radical change from the attitudes that exist now. So how does that all play out? Do we go all nuclear and not need as much oil? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, but it's going to be a major change from what we, we have right now. So eventually, more and more complex and expensive technology will be required to produce oil. Oil will become more expensive and alternatives will become more and more important, uh, even more so than they are today. Another really big theme is the international monetary system, which was really put in place at the end of the last fourth turning at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, which right. designates the U.S. dollar as the international trade currency and is also the de facto favored reserve asset for central banks, to, to, which is essentially like the, the piggy bank or the savings account of an entire country. Uh, it's all U.S. Treasury uh, bonds is what they hold as their, uh, you know, piggy bank asset mm -hmm. for uh, all the nations around the world. Things of that magnitude are likely to change. China and Russia right now both have expressed extreme frustration that the United States continues to have this monopoly on the world's reserve currency status. They would like very much through a process that uh, a scholar in Russia called Sergei Glazyev has called de-dollarization. Mm. They would like to persuade the rest of the world to dump the U.S. dollar, and they've actually just introduced a new crude oil contract, which is not trading yet, but which will be both denominated in yuan and convertible into uh, gold. And so the idea is to bypass the U.S. dollar for the international sale of oil. They're trying to do things to displace that. Now, that would have profound, profound implications because the U.S. gets essentially a free license 
to borrow and spend as much money as it wants to. Normally, if a country is over-indebted, it pays a very, very harsh price for that. But as the world's reserve currency issuer, the United States is almost forced to run massive current account deficits, uh, mm -hmm. trade deficits, in order to supply the world with a supply of dollars necessary to run the global economy. If the U.S. dollar was no longer needed uh, internationally in that capacity, all of the sudden there would be a massive crisis in the U.S. Treasury market, all of the international buyers wouldn't be there anymore. So there are a lot of people in the world that would like to displace the U.S. dollar's hegemony over the global financial system. How does that play out? One of the possibilities is a government-backed cryptocurrency. And, you know, this is something where I think people in the West are so complacent and so lost. They think of China as, you know, China, third world country. You know, it's a bunch of peasants bent over in a field picking rice or something. That's China. That's, of course, that used to be true, you know, 50 or 100 years ago that was true. Right. Well, right now, China has absolutely no shortage of fantastically talented software engineering uh, capabilities. And the People's Bank of China is hiring blockchain engineers right now to design the digital RMB. Okay, right. what do they have in mind for this digital RMB? Are they going to use the popularity of a cryptocurrency, combine it with being state-backed, maybe even combine it with being gold-backed at some point, and use it to assert it as a competitor to the U.S. dollar as the world's global reserve currency? They're not saying that's their strategy yet, but as I look at it, I kind of scratch my head and say, hmm. What are they up to? Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of things that are going on with the, the general international monetary system and the desire of other countries not to let the U.S. continue to monopolize it. Um, so this de-dollarization theme is very important. And the other thing, I'm sure if your viewers have seen an interview with Jim Rogers, the reason that Jim moved his whole country to Singapore was because he could see what was coming. And he felt so strongly that he wanted his two newborn daughters to grow up speaking fluent Chinese. Right. Now, he, didn't, he told me uh, much more recently that he didn't know when he moved to Singapore in 2007 that what they speak in Singapore is not exactly perfect Putonghua, but uh, <laughs> you know, and, and the, they speak bad, bad English, Singlish, and bad Chinese. But um, he, his daughters, they speak fluent Mandarin. It was mm. very important to him to bring his his children up in an environment because he could see what's coming for the world. So this idea that it's Asia's century, uh, I think, is is really important. Now that doesn't mean that. Right now, this instant, Asia takes over. Look at it. Really, the last century was the United States century. Well, look at what we went through between World War One and a Great Depression, stock market crash in 1929, uh, World War Two. I mean, there are a lot of bad times that go into having your century. So it doesn't mean that it's all roses for Asia, but I think that eventually Asia is going to be in a much stronger position at the end of this century than when it started it. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, you, uh, Eric, you have a, you know, you talk about this, uh, this de-dollarization theme a lot. I know on your, sh on your show, your program, uh, you know, Macro Voices, which is a great, uh, great podcast that we'll, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later on this, uh, on this interview. But um, I just wanted to, if you could quickly explain um, sort of the significance of what you just mentioned, the the oil contract that that is in yuan uh, that might be uh, convertible to gold, um, and and if you could just give us a quick primer without you know obviously going too far down the uh, history uh, rabbit hole, but the significance of that and um, you know with the petrodollar and how that was 
uh, sort of the institution for a while and now how this is uh, pretty uh, radical and it's, it's going to change the way um, that, uh, that, that that can be traded with China. Okay, so uh, I try not to go too deep because <laughs> you're right, I have a, a, a bad habit of doing that. Uh, an economist named Robert Triffin started writing in the 1950s and 60s about what became known as Triffin's paradox, which is he said, look, how do you decide which country's uh, currency is going to be the world's reserve currency? Mm -hmm. Well, you pick the best credit, the strongest credit. Clearly, in 1944, when the United States was a creditor nation with no external debts and the, the Great War had been fought entirely overseas, it had never been fought on U.S. shores, most of Europe is lying in ruin, clearly the U.S. dollar had to be the world's reserve currency. Right. Okay, what is the result of gaining this status of being the world's reserve currency. Well, it basically gives the, uh, the issuing country, uh, it, it creates such a demand for their currency offshore that it almost forces the issuing country to borrow and spend beyond their means because right. what the issuing country has to do is basically print up a whole bunch of money in order to make it available to the rest of the world. And that allows the government to do all kinds of things. Now, if a country that was not the reserve currency issuer did that, they would see the, uh, the yields on their treasury bonds go through the roof as a result of default risk. Right. If you've got all this artificial demand externally, it essentially let the U.S. go into debt for free. Mm. Uh, uh, the foreign minister, or I'm sorry, the finance minister of France, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, said in the 1960s, the U.S. gets essentially an exorbitant privilege it doesn't deserve, which is right. the ability to go into debt for free. What Triffin said is this, this paradox, you know, it, it, it starts with how do you get to be the reserve currency? You've got to be the best, strongest credit. Mm. Having that status just encourages you to go become the worst credit, to, to borrow and spend to the point where your currency is no longer nearly as strong as it was when you started. Right. And he predicted that the U.S. would eventually have to lose its reserve currency status. Now, a lot of people thought that was going to happen when in 1971, President Nixon was effectively forced to close the gold window, to default right. on the Bretton Woods Conference, which promised the rest of the world that U.S. dollars would always be convertible into gold at a fixed convertible, excuse me, at a fixed conversion price of $35 per ounce. Well, when the rest of the world figured out that the U.S. dollar was not really worth the, the gold that backed mm -hmm. it, they started turning in their, their dollars and sure. wanting the gold. And it was very clear that the U.S. was going to have a run on its gold reserves. So President Nixon slams the gold window. A lot of people assumed, okay, this is it. The U.S. loses its reserve currency status. At the time, the uh, Secretary of State of the United States, Henry Kissinger, was a very astute, shrewd man who understood exactly what was at stake. He went and met with Saudi Arabia and basically made him a deal they couldn't refuse. He said, look, you guys uh, are in a very fortunate position. The royal family is very, very wealthy uh, because you're in power right now. Would really be bad for you if that was overthrown somehow. And by the way, our CIA has a, a little bit of a, a history of overthrowing people <laughs> in countries. On the other hand, if you cut a deal with me right now and made a promise that you're going to only sell your oil in dollars, regardless of whether it's to the United States or to China or to Russia, to, you know, it doesn't matter who, 
only price it in dollars. And number two, whatever profits you make, you're going to reinvest that in U.S. Treasury bonds, the safest investment on earth. Right. Well, of course, Kissinger was smart enough to know that Treasury bonds were about to be anything but the <laughs> safest investment on earth, unless he could talk the Saudis into this. But they knew they didn't have a choice. They, they knew that they had to do uh, what he wanted. And so the petrodollar system was born. And basically, the petrodollar system means that the oil-producing nations, particularly Saudi Arabia, price and sell their oil in dollars. That means there has to be this huge international demand for all the other countries around the world to have dollars to pay for their oil exports in. It allows the U.S. dollar to continue to be the world's reserve currency, even after Nixon defaulted on the gold convertibility upon which it was based. Now, that's what's kept it going for the last 45 years. One of the reasons is that the U.S. was the biggest importer of crude oil. It was right. in a position of, hey, we're the biggest customer. We can, uh, we can throw our weight around and get what we want. Well, all of a sudden, the U.S. is absolutely not the biggest importer. China is as big of an mm -hmm. importer as crude oil and probably will soon be a bigger importer of crude oil. Um, it, it's not what it used to be. So if you were to change the world in a way that the Saudis and everybody else sold their oil in a currency other than U.S. dollars, there would not be a need for all the countries around the world to have U.S. dollars to pay for their oil. Right. And that means that all of a sudden, the things that have kept the U.S. dollar's hegemony over the global financial system and have allowed the U.S. to borrow and spend beyond its means without really paying any penalty in the sense of uh, default risk in the bond market, those things could all change. And that's a really big deal. So I just interviewed Luke Groman recently on my show. Right. He thinks that this new uh, oil contract, you know, on the surface of it, it looks like it was just designed to be a, a, a contract that nobody other than China would use because it allows you to pay for your oil and yuan. Well, nobody but China has yuan to spend on oil, so why would this matter? Groman thinks there's a lot more to it than that. He thinks that China is trying to create a mechanism which basically allows any country in the world to bypass the dollar uh, going through the yuan market right. and, uh, and to effectively take this uh, exorbitant privilege that the United States has had and transfer it to China. Uh, and it's a fascinating concept. So this contract is not trading yet. What really remains to be seen is when it starts trading. Is it like some esoteric thing that gets, you know, 10 contracts a day traded? Or does it suddenly capture market share and, you know, uh, dramatically uh, take over what the Brent contract currently commands in, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the, the market share that, that is transacted through it. Right. We don't know yet, but it sure looks in a lot of ways like that was designed with the intention of stripping the United States of the, uh, the benefits that it has. And frankly, I don't think the United States government gets it anymore. Henry Kissinger understood this stuff inside out and backwards. He designed it. He knew what he was doing. Um, I don't think that the current, you know, I, I don't <laughs> think President Trump understands all of these mechanics as, as well as Kissinger did. Right. And uh, I think that the United States takes a lot for granted. They assume, hey, we're the biggest, we're the strongest, we're the mightiest, nobody would dare to ever question us. 
I think that um, militarily, that's still true. Economically, I think it's changing, and I think it could change in a big way, and it could be one of those things that sneaks up on you, and I think the United States may be in for a rude awakening. Now, it certainly does not mean I'm predicting that happens tomorrow or next week or next year. Over the next 12 years, the rest of this fourth turning, I wouldn't be surprised if it was no longer just commonly accepted that the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency and always will be. I think right. that's likely to change. Absolutely. That was an excellent uh, overview, Eric. You know, I think if you ever get bored of the hedge fund- I was supposed to could, not be long-winded yeah, with that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. I, I, you could definitely become a, uh, like a history professor. Uh, you, you brought up a lot of thought-provoking uh, points there that I think the audience is going to go back and, and research uh, after we're done. So uh, thank you for that exp explanation. So um, now going back to China now, uh, and the theme of this being Asia's uh, century, so to speak, you know, I mean, a lot of investors have, have sort of rushed in over the last decade, 15 years, uh, in and out. Some have come in too early, gotten burned. Some have just not done their homework or didn't really know what was going on. Um, and then you see a lot of even companies trying to break into uh, and penetrate the Chinese market uh, without having a good underground partner. Uh, they think they can just steamroll in and uh, set up shop and take over and then they're out of business in two to three years and they leave the country with their tail between their legs. Um, so from an investor's standpoint, I do understand that uh, there are very specific nuances with uh, the Asian markets and, and China particularly. Um, but from, from what you're saying, it sounds like it's a, it's a pretty good uh, bet, bet, so to speak, on a longer-term basis. Um, what do you make of sort of uh, investing in Asia and, you know, China? How, what, what, what are your sort of big-picture thoughts and uh, any cautions that uh, an investor might consider before uh, diving in? Yeah, really, really big cautions. Uh, I suggest going back about 90 years, look at the roaring 20s in the United States when there was some economic prosperity after World War I. Everybody was feeling great. Uh, a, a lot of very uh, fast-moving activity in the economy. Everybody thought nothing could ever break. There was the famous uh, quote about how stocks had reached a permanently high plateau and could never come down again. And then we got the stock market crash of 1929. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not necessarily predicting that China is going to have a crash akin to 1929, but the ingredients are there for it. There's a, a very famous hedge fund manager in Texas called Kyle Bass, yes. who has been staking his entire career on this idea that this massive, massive credit expansion that has occurred since 2009 in China is going to blow up in China's face. It's going to force the PBOC to have to dramatically devalue the yuan in order to recapitalize the banking system, and that that could send a wave of deflation around the world that is really induces the next global financial crisis. And Kyle thinks that that's overdue to happen. Now, that doesn't mean he's right. Uh, he's been thinking that for a few years now, and it hasn't right. happened yet. But I think there are plenty of reasons to consider that where we are in this story right now, you know, the, the best time to come in with new money to invest in any market is right after a crash when there's blood in the streets right. that 2009 moment when everybody is afraid to invest because it seems like the sky is falling that is not the environment that we have now so my advice to anyone coming into this whether first thing is to understand the difference between investing and trading mm -hmm. investing is 
uh, building a portfolio that you're going to buy and hold for a long period to grow your wealth and that you know you don't want to be coming into buying and holding assets for a long period if we're at the top you know these things come in waves if we're kind of uh, surfing right. on top of the wave maybe you don't want to be bringing new money to work in a market that may be headed for a, a down trough sometime soon in the next few years here uh, from a trading standpoint though in particular trading being a shorter time frame how do I put trades on to make money in the next several months or uh, or perhaps as long as the next few years um, I think that what you want to do is realize there are times for different strategies. If we were at the bottom of a cycle, if this was 2009 and everything's dirt cheap, value investing, the Warren Buffett style of investing, mm -hmm. that's what you'd want to learn about because it's the way to look for the bargains and buy the things that are just so distressed that they can only go up. Nothing is cheap in this market. Now, there may be some things that are still going to go up, but nothing is cheap. So if you look, Michael Koval, he wrote a book about trend following. Trend following is a directionally neutral strategy. It's not saying I'm going to bet on things going up. It's saying I'm going to bet on things either going up or going down based on what the market is actually telling me about what's happening. Mm -hmm. If you look at a strategy like trend following, another one would be option writing. In option writing, you're not betting on what's going to happen. You're betting on what's not going to happen because you're selling the options to someone else who's bu buying them because they think they know what is going to happen. Um, if you look at strategies that are not associated with an assumption that a bull market is going to exist, I think you're much better off. There's no, if you're investing for the longer term, there's a strategy called long short equity, which a lot of hedge funds use. The idea there is to say, I'm not going to just pick the best companies and buy their stock hoping it goes up. I'm going to pick the best companies with half of my money buy their stock and I'm going to look for the worst companies and I'm going to use the other half of my money to short their stock to bet right. that the price is going to go down. That way, if you have an up year in the stock market, your long positions are going to outperform your shorts. If you have a down year, your shorts are going to outperform your longs, but hopefully you still make money either way in an up or a down market. So there are strategies that work in both up and down markets. This is a time, if you're coming into this, to learn about those kinds of strategies, not about the strategies like value investing that work best when you're coming in at the bottom of a cycle. Right. Um, I mean, you know, <laughs> It sounds like, you know, from, from everything that we've sort of been talking about uh, thus far, and, you know, you, you, you go over a lot of, of these same concepts on your, on your podcast with a number of, of uh, extraordinary guests and, and brilliant investors. But, you know, essentially the markets on, at least in the U.S., um, you know, by many, many metrics, almost every single metric are extremely overvalued, ext extremely rich at this point. Um, it does make sense to, if you are invested there, to take some chips off of that table and perhaps look over into Asia. So, um, you know, what, what would be some, some uh, you know, sort of simple, I don't know, if, you, if asset allocation is, it might not really be your thing, but what would be some simple ways that investors that are listening uh, and, and have, you know, maybe some of these things that you've said have resonated with them and they're like, okay, maybe I should you know, I should rotate out of uh, maybe U.S. Uh, equities or fixed income and look into Asia. Are there any things that are on your radar uh, that you might recommend? 
Yeah, what I would uh, be careful of in Asia is anything that's associated with credit and the massive expansion of credit that has occurred. Kyle Bass has a very good point about this credit expansion. So if you look at uh, things like banking shares, they're going to be really hurt if mm. the uh, credit collapse that Kyle Bass predicts occurs. On the other hand, if you look at uh, technological innovation, uh, you know, technology entrepreneurship, small companies that are doing uh, exciting things with technology. Uh, recently, I've been riding these electric unicycles. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, with these I've products. I've seen them, they're, yeah. I've seen them. They're, they're, they're outlawed in Hong Kong, unfortunately. I saw one in Singapore not too long ago, actually, maybe a month or two ago when I was down there. And so, you know, little, little inventions like this, you know, could only come out of China. And uh, <laughs> they're really cool. They're not very expensive and they're super fun. They're apparently in a lot of Chinese cities, they are the thing as far as, um, uh, and I guess a lot of your viewers have no idea what we're talking about. So go to YouTube and put in Airwheel. Airwheel is not the best brand of electric unicycle, but they do have the best videos. Um, right. and, and you'll see these things. There, there's, it's basically a, uh, a little electric wheel with a battery on top of it, and it's a gyroscope that balances it. And you stand on it with two little pedals, and you ride it around the city. It goes up; uh, mine goes up to forty-five kilometers per hour. Although I would be scared to ever go that fast. And it's got a handle on it. You pick it up and take it on the subway or on the bus with you. Um, it's really cool. That kind of innovation coming out of Asia is awesome. I would be looking at companies that are doing cool, innovative technology things as opposed to uh, exposure to the you know, Chinese banking system, in particular right. Chinese credit markets. I'd be really careful there. Eric, you mentioned uh, earlier, we talked a little bit briefly about cryptocurrencies. And um, so we, have, we hear all these things about, <laughs> uh, about Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrencies. I think a lot of people, uh, it, it, to me, it's kind of like religion because I, I don't own any uh, for the record and uh, I, don't, I can't really take a view because uh, I don't know that much about it. But hearing different people argue about it, it's like either religion or politics. It's, people are very, have strong opinions on it. Uh, what are your views? Uh, I'm particularly interested because you do have a technology background, so you, I'm sure you uh, know a lot more about the technology than, than most yeah, you know, what I would say is, you know, what if you had met the Wright brothers in 1906 and had the opportunity to invest with them? Well, wouldn't that be the, the ultimate of getting in on the ground floor? Mm. Well, guess what? The Wright brothers never made any money on aviation. <laughs> it was other people who did. Right. And unfortunately, what I, I have predicted this for a long time, as a, as a technology guy, I love Bitcoin. I think it is so cool. I just can't stand it. I would never pay a penny to buy one of these things. And the reason is simply that I, I cannot imagine governments allowing it to continue. What Bitcoin was designed to do was to create a money system that is completely anonymous and completely immune from government overreach. It's impossible for the government to seize your account or track your transactions or know who you are or tax you or any of those things. Uh, it's a libertarian pipe dream. It, it is uh, a, a governmental nightmare. And mm. I think that what will happen, unfortunately, is governments will steal all of the wonderful innovations from the first generation of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum 
the blockchain idea is absolute brilliance from a software engineering standpoint. Uh, that is going to be used for a long time to come. Unfortunately, I think that the way it will be used is Bitcoin will be outlawed. China has been the first uh, major nation to take governmental action to do that, something I've predicted for years now. And uh, I think it will be outlawed around the world. It, the excuse that will be given is that it's the tool of terrorists. And, uh, you know, there is actually some truth to that. The people that are uh, putting up ransom, uh, you know, attacks on mm. uh, stealing uh, intellectual property and th this, this uh, hack that happened uh, to Equifax, which is yep. a big credit rating agency, you know, it's right. pay us so many Bitcoins. Right. They will use stories like that out of context to say Bitcoin is the tool of criminals and terrorists. No good person other than a criminal or a terrorist would ever want to have them, and therefore we're outlawing them. What they'll do then is the governments will steal all of the technical innovation and they will invent a new digital currency. By the way, People's Bank of China appears to already be doing this mm -hmm. right now. They're hiring blockchain engineers to design the digital RMB. I predict, and I have no idea what the digital RMB is, is conceived to be, but I predict that eventually we will have a government-backed cryptocurrency, which is the opposite, the antithesis of Bitcoin. Everything will be traceable. The government will be able to know exactly who has every penny of wealth on the planet, who they got it from, when they got it, how long they've had it, wh where the last guy got it from. Uh, they'll be able to seize accounts. They'll be able to tax accounts. They'll be able to do anything that they want. And they will use uh, the technology innovations that the creators of Bitcoin uh, invented in order to basically do the exact opposite of, of what the Bitcoin designers set out to do. It's a very sad story, in my opinion. I, I don't agree with the view that that's for the better good. I think that governments tend to interfere too much in our lives. But if I look, you know, in the investment business, you've got to be really, really careful to separate your own views about what should happen from an objective analysis of what's most likely to happen. What's most likely to happen, I think, is governments will continue to abuse our human rights and uh, control things in a way that give all of the power to the governments. And the way you do that is you outlaw Bitcoin and Ethereum and you provide a government-sponsored cryptocurrency which has exactly the opposite set of features. And I hope that I'm proven wrong. I've, I've never wanted to be wrong about anything. <laughs> as much as that but you can see it's already happening with mm -hmm. with uh, china is you know chinese government is doing two things at the same time outlawing bitcoin and hiring blockchain engineers to make their own cryptocurrency right uh, you know read the read the the handwriting on the wall i guess yeah. is my message absolutely uh you mentioned a very good point there eric about independent thinking and i think that as an investor it's something that's uh, all of us struggle with and, and finding uh, your sort of conviction level based on, on your experience and your research and your tra trading uh, experience uh, and, and just really trying to separate, like you said, uh, you know, what, 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 what is independent thinking versus your biases that you might be carrying into the trade uh, from, from your previous life experiences. Um, so as, as someone who sort of have a, had a diverse background uh, and, and educated yourself uh, really um, on, on investing, what, what's some advice that you could give to some of our viewers um, that you know, are serious about wanting to learn how to invest, maybe start off as a private investor very much like yourself, uh, and then you know, hopefully scale up to, uh, to see some of the success that you have? Well, 
it all starts with the Schrager doctrine. You've got to figure out what style of investing resonates with your personality and you've got to find passion for it. There's no reason to ever put a trade on unless you have edge and you know what that edge is. And you're not going to find that edge until you have enough passion to work really hard at this. It's not something you can dabble with in your spare time. So uh, I would certainly say that's probably the first thing. You know, a lot of people very understandably think this might be an interesting hobby that they'll dabble with for a few hours here and there. My strong advice to that part of the audience is don't do it. Try golf or ping pong, <laughs> something else. Don't do it. If you want to pursue this, you've got to figure out what's that style of investing that I'm going to feel so passionate about that it doesn't feel like work to me, that I just can't wait to pick up the next book and read all about it. And it's very much a question of your personality. The best way I know to figure that out is to read all four of Jack Schwager's Market Wizards books. Even if you don't understand what they're talking about, some of the strategies are very complex hedge fund strategies, statistical arbitrage and so forth. It, it doesn't matter. You don't have to know what is actually being discussed. What you want to be reading it for, at least on the first read, is, okay, this guy, his whole strategy is about math and he, he likes to model things with algorithms and okay this other guy Jim Rogers for example is doesn't care about charts he doesn't care about any kind of technical analysis it's all about understanding what's going on in the world okay which one of those resonates for your personality better uh, start at a high level and eventually you find who are the characters in those market wizards books that uh, that become your role models and then you start to learn more about those people and how they do their things and how those strategies work and uh, it's, it's a lot of reading. You've got to have a lot of dedication and commitment to it. And it's, again, why I argue you, you can't be successful unless you find something that you really enjoy. Absolutely. Um, one, of the, one of the other things that I think uh, in recently, in recent years, uh, that I've actually uh, used as a great resource is, is podcasts such as your own. Um, you have a very good, I mentioned earlier, one of the best sort of investing podcasts out there called Macro Voices, which I've learned so much from so thank you eric for for your uh starting that and for your your commitment and your dedication to bringing just some fabulous guests uh you know some of the smartest investors that you hear about and you read about and you actually get to to pick their brain so to speak um so uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about that project why did you decide to get started on that um you know who who's the target audience of that and uh you know i mean it's all for free you provide so much free content out there um, you know, what's what's your motivation to do that? Well, I got started in podcasting. I was, uh, after I took a big trip around the world trying to uh, figure out where the best place to live is, I was interviewed on uh, another financial podcast about that trip. And it was kind of fun and uh, got a, a lot of interest and people sending me emails and, and wanting to, uh, you know, follow my newsletter that I was writing at the time. I don't have a newsletter anymore. I just do the podcast these days. And um, that got me involved as appearing on that podcast as a regular uh, sort of columnist. And what I encountered was there is a mindset, which is we've got to design these things for the retail investor, for the person who has no real professional experience. And I kept being told, no, Eric, you can't talk about future spreads. You can't talk about butterfly option combinations. You can't, you got to... <laughs> You got to keep it simple. Stocks are going up, stocks are going down. <laughs> and I found too that a lot of the guests that were interviewed, they're kind of used to being asked by the producers of 
whether it's a financial television show, a podcast or whatever, to basically dumb it down to a mm -hmm. retail level. And I thought, what if I, you know, it was, it was not so interesting for me to take a person that I really, really wanted to talk to that I would not get the opportunity to talk to and ask them questions that were not interesting because <laughs> I was trying to dumb it down to a retail level. I thought, what if I created the first and only podcast that was intentionally designed to say, look, we're not trying to get the biggest number of listeners. Right care about that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask these guests the questions that I, as a professional fund manager, want to ask them. I know that that's going to be fairly sophisticated right. uh, content that is not going to make sense to a lot of people, and I'm okay with that. This will be the only podcast in the world which is targeting professional finance and only the very, very sophisticated retail investors who've been doing it for long enough that they really know a whole lot about it. Right. And I assumed it would have a very small audience following. What's really uh, amazed me is the opposite has been true. We've got a huge retail following and we get emails all the time from people saying, look, I don't understand half of what you're talking about, but that's why I like this show. If I listen to the other show and I totally get it and I understand it, I don't really learn from it. Every time I listen to Macro Voices, you talk about something and I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? And I spend the next three hours <laughs> on Wikipedia figuring it out and I learn something and right. it's fascinating. So it's really surprised me that we've gained a much bigger audience than I expected to. And the strategy is basically um, to get all the people that I can think of that I want to talk to and, and ask questions of and try to give them interviews that are on a more professional, sophisticated level, uh, targeting the more sophisticated investor market. And to my surprise, we've got uh, a really fantastic following that's developed in the last couple of years. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely uh it's it's I, I only listen to a handful on a regular basis and it's definitely one of them and uh and i, I really like how how current you are uh when you talk about uh you know every 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 episode before you bring on the guest you, you do sort of a macro and, and markets overview which actually helps me a lot um in my own personal investing and just trying to keep tabs on on sort of the gush of information that's out there so Again, uh, thank you, Eric. Um, is there anything uh, that you are working on uh, in addition to the podcast, obviously, uh, that, that excites you right now um, or just more of the same, just putting out solid content and, and obviously running your fund? <laughs> yeah, between running the fund and, um, and producing the podcast, it's about all the bandwidth that I've got. But uh, I'm really loving it. I'd encourage people to come to macrovoices.com or just put macrovoices into the iTunes store. You can subscribe for free there. We publish every Thursday evening. Uh, and it's a little over an hour long each time. There's, as you said, a market wrap, and then there's a, a feature guest interview, which is about 45 minutes with some of the smartest people in finance. And it's mostly macroeconomic focused uh, interviews. So uh, come and check us out. And uh, no, as far as other projects, not a whole lot else going on. The, the fund and the podcast keep me pretty busy. Yeah, and the markets, I'm sure. Um, Eric, thank you so much for your time and uh, your generosity and just the insights that you shared. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's going to be very well received by our audience. Um, and again, they're going to, a lot of thought provoking uh, uh, nuggets that you dropped there for our audience. So that's great. Um, so just finally, where can people find you, follow, follow you and learn a little bit more about yourself or Macro Voices? Well, I'm trying to join the younger generation and do the Twitter thing. <laughs> so I've been active on Twitter lately. You can follow me at Eric S. Townsend. Eric is E-R-I-K-S is in Scott Townsend, T-O-W-N-S-E-N-D. 
on Twitter uh, and uh, macrovoices.com or just put macrovoices in. Uh, definitely the best way to follow me is to listen to the podcast every Thursday night. And that gives you both what I'm thinking about the markets uh, every single week, as well as a fascinating interview with a future guest. Fantastic. Thanks so much again, Eric. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Jake. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All of the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The Jay Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.